Al Jazeera podcast. The smell of death was so strong. When we arrived, I started walking through and I thought, wow, this is a graveyard. It's a graveyard, an unmarked graveyard. Stephanie Decker is in Morocco, following the aftermath of the earthquake for Al Jazeera. She flew there from Doha on one of the aid planes that rushed there last week. Qatar was one of the few countries whose planes made it in. I got sent on a Qatari aid flight with their search and rescue team. Morocco had accepted aid officially from four countries at this point, Qatar being one of them. Offers of help from around the world have poured in, but the Moroccan government has only accepted a few of them. The French uh, Foreign Ministry, they say they are just waiting for the green light from Morocco, but that has yet to come. No word from Morocco on whether or not they're going to accept this aid from France. Just over a week on, the efforts have turned from rescue to recovery. But the decision over what assistance to welcome has gotten caught up in questions of sovereignty and geopolitics. The rescue and recovery operations continue tonight, but at a slow pace. And that's a source of frustration and anger for many Moroccans who say their government is not doing enough. So how much of an impact does the politics of aid have on the ground? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We have arrived uh, one of countless villages that have been affected by the earthquake. Basically, the rock of the mountains fell, flattening entire areas. And uh, you have Spanish volunteers, French volunteers, and also uh, the Qatari official search and rescue team here. Steph and her team drove from the tourist city of Marrakesh through the narrow roads of Morocco's Atlas Mountains toward the earthquake's epicenter, all the way to remote villages. Some of those villages were wiped off the mountains entirely and were in desperate need of the aid. So we flew in from Al Udaid Air Base, the American Air Base uh, in Qatar, where the Qataris also have their Air Force on a C-17. They'd loaded it with aid, with about 80 or so personnel, most of them search and rescue, also a doctor, two medics. Um, vehicles, they had uh, cadaver dogs with them as well. And then we flew into Marrakesh. It was a nine-hour flight. We were with them for about a day or two just to sort of, you know, join them on the operations that they were undertaking in these remote areas of the Atlas Mountains. You've been on one of these flights before, but for people who haven't seen it, what is this like? Describe it for us. It's laden with aid in the middle. You sit. It's military style, right? So you sit on the side of the plane, strapped in. It's almost like you're flying in a massive tin that's full of tubes. It is super loud. It's, it's an experience. It's an experience, and it's not one that us civilians obviously are very used to. So, Steph, just seven months ago, you were in Turkey. I think I recall you saying that you saw pretty much every village in the region after the earthquake there. And now... Here you are again, covering a catastrophe, and in one of the hardest places to reach, 
On top of that trauma, how difficult has it been to get to the impacted areas? It gets, really gets extremely difficult. And I think this is, you can't really compare the two earthquakes. The death toll in Turkey is far higher, but the earthquake in Turkey was pretty much a flat land and in urban areas. Whereas what you have here is complete destruction of tiny villages that are scattered in the mountains. The access is what's making this so difficult. In Turkey, immediately, you had a mass operation of aid, of bulldozers, of clear-up. Whereas here, it's really difficult to see how even just the cleanup operation is going to start very soon because the roads, I mean, anyone who's been into a mountainous area, they're very narrow, they can be very steep, they're currently full of rubble. The mountain has been majorly disturbed. Like there's parts, of, there's sections of it that simply came down onto villages. So you have to clear the roads to get there. Oh, wow. And then you have villages that have been completely turned to rubble. To get you know, bulldozers even into these places seems pretty much impossible. So honestly, like it looks like an insurmountable task. And I'm sure there are villages that still haven't been reached. And you've been touring some of those villages that have been devastated by the earthquake. Where have you been? What have you seen? Yeah, so we went to one uh, village called Imintala, completely decimated. And they're uh, going to try to retrieve the many bodies they believe that are buried under the rubble. From what we were told by a group of Spanish volunteers, it's mainly recovery uh, at this point. Heartbreaking, because these are agricultural people, they have farmland, they're poor, they live off the mountain, they live in very basic huts built from mud, from wood, and it, it, these villages just look shattered. One woman, when we were there, found out that she'd lost her entire family and she just sat down and she sobbed. And I don't think all us journalists, you know, you were putting it, we're filming people at their most desperate time in their lives. That we, we, we were all crying. The survivors, how are they living? Are they just living outside? Are there tents provided? Is there water? Is there food? There's a lot of volunteers, Moroccan volunteers, that are distributing food. Blankets are going to the places that they can get to. Like Wednesday, we ended up in a tiny village called Tilfatin. It's just one of so many in the Atlas Mountains. So it's taken us over an hour to drive to this remote village. They'd managed to clear the road. So when we were there and we were leaving, volunteers started to arrive handing out warm sandwiches. They were giving people slippers, flip-flops. These villagers have set up camp at the foot of their destroyed village. Nobody has any intention of leaving here. Um, it's so remote that aid isn't getting here in terms of being delivered. So basically, what they're doing is walking to villages that are more accessible or using donkeys and uh, bringing it here. You know, it's just, it's very difficult to see 
how they're going to live because they don't want to leave these areas. So they are living in tents. You're talking about the nights that are getting much, much colder on the mountain. One gentleman we spoke to in this village he said, we're going to wait and see what the government does. He said, but our problem is the roads. People cannot get to us. And he was standing with this tiny pickaxe and a pair of shoes in the midst of this pile of rubble. And you could see half a section of his house at the top where he was going to. Mm-hmm. And we said to him, what are you doing? I said, it's so dangerous. And he laughed and he said, you know, he said, it sounds ridiculous. I know, but I'm trying to find my cell phone. <laughs> He's like, I want to try and find my mobile phone. And I guess for all of us, you know, our mobile phones are such a connection, yeah. right, to everything. Uh, and he was just like, that, that, that's what I'm going to try and do. You said that there's recovery happening. Recovery is a technical term as opposed to rescue. Is there a way to explain the difference? Yeah, so basically when they send in teams, they call them search and rescue teams. And there is a, 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 a very strong and tragic difference, I guess. The rescue operation is when they think that there is someone alive um, under the rubble. Mm-hmm. And a recovery operation is when it comes to simply recovering uh, bodies. So unfortunately, when since we've been here, it's only been a recovery operation. So it sounds very clinical, but that's what it is. Like it's simply trying to retrieve the dead bodies from underneath people's homes, returning them to their families so they can finally bury them, which obviously is such an important process for the families. And and even that is proving to be a very difficult challenge to be able to give the bodies back to the families to be able to bury them. But the rugged Atlas Mountains aren't the only barrier hindering the flow of aid. More on the politics that appear to have a role after the break. When Truganini died, she was mistakenly declared the last Tasmanian Aboriginal. Though some say she sold out her people, in hindsight, Truganini's survival allowed future generations to learn about the near annihilation of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. I'm Charles Dance. Listen as I trace the life of Truganini. Hindsight by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So, Steph, the videos on social media are really hard to watch. They're of what you described when you saw the woman break down. You have survivors crying for help, voicing their frustration, their anger, saying the government's not doing enough. The officials aren't here. If they rescued the people in the morning, they could have saved their lives. There was no one to help them until they died. I know that you were with search and rescue teams, some of them international. What's happening with the aid and recovery operations? I think uh, certainly it feels that more can be done. The main people we have seen on the ground in the various villages we've been to are volunteers. There isn't the international response on the ground, for example, that I saw in Turkey. You don't have that here. Morocco has accepted, and there's been a lot of controversy about this in the press, for official countries. And there's been a lot of questions as to why it hasn't accepted more. Morocco says it's because it's tried to sort logistics and it's very difficult to get to areas. It's doing what it, what it can. 
According to the Moroccan government, it's just a matter of coordination. Abdel Malik Alawi, the president of the Moroccan Institute for Strategic Intelligence, spoke to Al Jazeera from Rabat. Morocco clarified very clearly through a press release from the Minister of Interior that all international aid is welcome in Morocco, but it has to be organized and it has to come in a proper way so you don't create these bottlenecks. But not everyone sees it that way, including William Lawrence. He spent years studying Morocco, and he's a professor at American University's School of International Service. The international diplomacy of this is very important. I learned a lot of these lessons when I was on the Katrina task force at the State Department. That's Hurricane Katrina, which decimated the U.S. city of New Orleans. At the time, the U.S. also received plenty of offers of foreign aid, and William helped the U.S. navigate how the government would bring it in. And it was very difficult for the U.S. psychologically and bureaucratically to accept international assistance from dozens of countries when we're used to being the sister, not the assistee. He sees similar issues coming up for Morocco now. Morocco is trying to do it on its own without relying too much on the outside, sending political messages about who they want in and who they want out. And there are legitimate reasons for the hesitation, he says. Morocco doesn't want to be nice. They don't want all these people coming in with their smartphones and saying, well, you're doing this wrong, you should have done that. You know, so that's an aspect of it. There's reputational uh, aspects of this. There's pride aspects of this. There's, uh, uh, you know, many, many, many dimensions. Sometimes political dimensions. Given all the tricky relationships Morocco has, mostly around the Western Sahara issue. Qatar, Spain, Britain, and the UAE have all been allowed in the country. But France, Israel, and Algeria, Morocco's next-door neighbor, are some of those left off the official list. William says it mostly comes back to a territorial dispute, Western Sahara. Morocco and Algeria have been feuding over the Western Sahara area since colonial times. As the area decolonized, uh, Algeria supported an independence movement and Morocco claimed the territory without allowing a referendum over determination, which is what the UN wanted. Algeria blames Morocco, Morocco blames Algeria. And until recently, Algeria has restricted its airspace to Morocco. It wasn't allowing Moroccan planes to fly over Algeria commercially or otherwise. But with the earthquake, that changed. Algeria just lifted the ban over use of its airspace for relief in Morocco. It was a small gesture. But it was extremely important. But Morocco still hasn't allowed in Algerian aid in any official capacity. As for France, their foreign minister says President Emmanuel Macron has been in touch with Morocco's King Mohammed VI, but they haven't spoken. She added that Rabat has not responded to the aid offer. And then there's Israel. In 2020, Morocco normalized its relationship with Israel by signing on to the Abraham Accords. But according to polls, the majority of Moroccans disapprove of normalization. The Israelis have incredible capacity. Morocco's probably first reaction was, oh, let's get the Israelis in. And then second reaction was, wait a second, we're not letting the Algerians and the French help, and they're going to get mad if we let the Israelis in. So then none of the three come in. As for how long all this aid will be needed for reconstruction, that could take years. We're talking about a massive 
remaking of half of the High Atlas Mountains communities. And that's a, a multi-year effort that only massive amounts of, of human financial resources and expertise. And even though Morocco has better governance and better technological capacity than the vast majority of African countries, for example, they don't have everything they need. A week after the quake's impact, the initial shock is starting to wear off. Our correspondent, Steph, says the survivors are starting to think about that long road ahead. In the village of Ibintala on Tuesday, there was a man, and sometimes, you know, you don't you don't want to ask people when you see how they're grieving. You, you don't want to put the camera in their face. You don't want to ask them how they're feeling because it's clear how they're feeling. And it's, I, it's, at times I find it very invasive and insensitive. It is our job, but you choose your moments. And this gentleman actually came to us and started talking to us. And he broke down. And Fadi, our cameraman, said, do you mind if I film you? And he said, no, not at all. And he stood up and he actually took us to his house. We've just bumped into this gentleman who tells us this is uh, this is his home up there. I'm hurt here and I'm hurt here. And he was explaining to us how he lost his wife, how he lost his two sons, how he still could see the abaya of his wife under the rubble. Oh no. And how he had fled through that white door and everything just collapsed and he started sobbing. Obviously, we need to rebuild all of this, but that's only possible if help comes. It's hard to remove all of this. The pain and the grief of these people, and we're all human beings, we all have loved ones, we all have family. And what's happened to these people is in an instant, they've lost all of that. You know, we've, we've talked about the fact that this isn't your first massive earthquake that you've covered even this year. But is there anything else about your experience um, this time around that compares to what you've seen in Turkey? I think the, um, the way people come out to help, I think that's something that was very heartwarming at a time when, you know, it, 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 the grief of, of, of people and the devastation that's happened to, to, to their lives, um, it's tragic, but it kind of does sort of lift your spirits when you see how people come together. You know, they drive through the night with their cars packed full of items that they've collected, volunteering, going through all these difficult terrains, not sleeping, sleeping outside to help people, people that they've never met. And people crying genuinely for those they've never met, for the grief and, the, and the, the hardships they're going through. And I think that's really heartwarming to see and how others try to help, you know, everyone around them. And I think that is something that we should hold dear to. And that's The Take. To see more of Steph's behind-the-scenes reporting from Morocco, go to our show notes. We'll pop a link to her Instagram account there. This episode was produced by Sari Al-Khalili and Amy Walters, with Ishish Madhotra, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Berenice Campana, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Bazar, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>